0: Thank you, Dean. Appreciate you sharing with us from the story. We are in the series where we have been studying the book of Daniel, uh, as Dean just read for us, and we're calling the series, What to Do When the World Falls Apart. What to Do When the World Falls Apart. We live in a world that is crazier than normal right now. Um, Throughout the history of the world, there's always been sin and brokenness, disease, death, chaos, political problems, But it seems that things are a little crazier than normal right now. And so we're spending some time during this period to look at the book of Daniel, a time when we see God's people, those who had faith in Jesus, they were sent in exile. And that reminds us of the way we live because the New Testament says that we are also living in exile, which means we're not really in our true home. We're waiting to return to the perfect paradise of heaven. When the new heavens and the new earth have uh, made everything right, where God has kind of restored paradise, restored Eden for us in this world. We're waiting. And God gives us really specific instructions in how to wait, how to live that life. And those instructions that we find in the New Testament line up really well with the instructions that God gave to the exiles in the Old Testament. We started this series in Jeremiah 29, where Jeremiah said, this is how exiles are to live. And then throughout Daniel, we've been seeing, okay, this is what it looks like. They're an embodiment of faithfulness. So we can learn from them. This week we're in Daniel three, as Dean just read. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter three, Daniel chapter three. And we're calling the sermon this week, walk through fire, walk through fire. Uh, Weird timing because it seems that the entire Western half of the United States is on fire right now. Um, And I want to clarify that I know that this can be uh, upsetting for some of you. Uh, myself, my family, we, we endured a house fire and escaped and we were okay, but that's a really scary idea and a scary memory. And I know there are people here that actually fled California two years ago when there were such bad fires. And they're kind of being reminded of, of this terror again with all the fires that are happening right now. Um, know that I'm praying for you um, and know that the, the terror of fire, the reality of how horrible it actually is Reminds us of something very true, something very real. In scripture, fire is a symbol of judgment. It's a symbol of judgment of the purging of what is evil, Um, but it also has a positive sense throughout scripture. It's a symbol of judgment, like the idea of hell and death, but it's also a symbol of purification because they would purify gold and silver and precious metals in the ancient world through fire. Um, The impurities would be burned away. And so as we face the terror of fire in this passage, we have to recognize that fire can be a scary judgment, but it also can be something that purifies us, something that makes us more holy and something that helps us to be more faithful in our pursuit of Jesus. As we think about the title Walk Through Fire, I want you to be envisioning our friends who are firefighters. I want you to be envisioning what they do. They face the terror of fire on behalf of others. They regularly walk into the fire uh, to rescue the rest of us. And really that's an image that we should live out as followers of Jesus. We should be that same kind of person. That's kind of a, a symbol for how we should live our life. God calls us to walk through the fire of this insane world on behalf of others. We are living sacrifices, we're told in Romans 12. And we do that not to impress God or to win his favor, but we are living sacrifices because Jesus has already sacrificed himself for us. In Romans 12, one and two, it's very clear that we look back on all the grace that God has given us in Jesus, that God has loved us and adopted us. And because of that, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Because of that, we walk through the fire for others. So I'm gonna read a little bit of the beginning part of the story in Daniel three, and then we'll unpack the story details as we move on through the morning. So Daniel chapter three, verse one says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. It's about 90 feet by nine feet. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So the big threat of the story so far is a burning, fiery furnace, the fires of judgment for defying and refusing to worship as King Nebuchadnezzar calls people to worship. There's also a funny little literary note that we'll point out that we're not gonna get the full effect of because we're breaking it into pieces. But when you read the whole story together, there's a lot of repetition. And so on the one hand, this kind of repetition is normal in ancient literature because it makes it more of a uh, recitation, right? When you're telling a story, uh, you recite things more than when you're writing a story. That's just kind of a difference in spoken word versus written word. And so in oral cultures, you have a lot of repetition. That is part of what makes the story easier to listen to, right? It kind of gives it a sing-song feel. But scholars actually point out that this story, much more than others, has even more repetition. It's almost childish. And so some scholars think that this is kind of a juxtaposition of a, a childish level of child story time repetition that points out the childishness of Nebuchadnezzar himself. So that's kind of an interesting little side note on the literary framing of the story and all the repetition he keeps repeating these keywords over and over and over again. And it contrasts that with this Nebuchadnezzar who sets up this thing, who uh, erects this symbol, who who raises up this big mighty statue. Over and over again, you'll see that phrase. He set it up, he set it up, he set it up. And so the question for us to ask as we look at this text is, what am I setting up? How am I raising myself up? How am I magnifying myself versus how am I magnifying the God of the universe, the God who has saved me? And so it's an interesting contrast that we are to ask of ourselves. Am I like Nebuchadnezzar or am I like the faithful Jewish young men that refused to worship the King, and instead worshiped their God. Good questions for us to ask. Let me pray for us and then we'll unpack the text. God, we pray that you would teach us. We pray that you would reach into our hearts by your Holy Spirit because we confess, Father, that human beings are complicated and glorious. You built us that way. And we have all kinds of clever ways of resisting the truth So God, we confess that we often use our strength to separate ourselves from you, to run from you. We pray that in this moment that you would supernaturally reach into our lives, that you would awaken our our hearts, that you'd give us open minds, that you would help us to listen to you, to see what's really going on in the story. And God, we pray that you'd help us to be those who like firefighters walk through the fire in love of others. In love of you and in love of the people around us, God, help us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this is an interesting story. And uh, what's great about stories is they've, you know, they've got a nice progression to them. And I'm breaking it into three parts as we roll through the rest of the story. We'll see three steps or three phases um, that we can learn from as we see these guys and their faithfulness to God. First one is don't be surprised by fire. Don't be surprised by fire. Second, the uh, thing we'll see is that we should speak truth to the fire. Speak truth to fire. A a cultural phrase we hear a lot is speak truth to power. Um, Here we're seeing that we should speak truth to fire. And then thirdly, meet the Savior in your fire. Meet the Savior in the fire. That's where the story ends. And, And another aside before we move on, these are little things that might distract you as you're looking at the text. You might be asking, where is Daniel? Have you been asking that? If you've read the story before? We've got his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel's not around. Where is Daniel? Is Daniel hiding under his desk? What is he doing? To be clear, we do not know, right? (laughs) That's the biblical answer. We don't know. Here's an educated guess. I would say he's one of the most powerful men and one of the most powerful empires in the world. So chances are he's just off on business, right? And chances are he's in another country inspecting part of the empire, but we just don't know. We don't really know exactly what's going on. Um, But here we're zeroing in on his buddies, who have also shown us what it means to be faithful to God as exiles, to be believing in Jesus, to be trusting him, even when you're not at home, you're in a place that you don't understand, you're in a place that doesn't obey God and follow God. What does it mean to be faithful to him? So we've got good things we can learn from these guys here. So the first one is don't be surprised by fire. Don't be surprised by fire. Here's a great New Testament reference for you, okay? You might wanna write this one down to look this up later. It's 1 Peter four twelve. 1 Peter 4.12 reminds us also to not be surprised by fire. Don't be surprised by fire. It says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So Peter just says it straight up. Don't be surprised. Fiery trials are going to come. James says, consider it all joy when these trials come. In our life Now, you have to be careful. In context, these are great opportunities to obey Jesus. We don't love the trial itself, right? We don't love the fire itself, yet we shouldn't be surprised by it. And we should see it as an opportunity for faithfulness. Do you see the hard times that come in your life as an opportunity for faithfulness, as an opportunity to cling to Jesus in the midst of, of chaos and craziness? So let's look at the story again. Skip down to verse six. We already read most of this beginning part. It says in verse six, whoever does not fall down and worship the image shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So we assume this is a giant smelting furnace. This would be like a giant furnace that people could walk into and they would use it to uh, melt and separate metal. Just as we talked about, this is a purification symbol repeatedly throughout scripture. We're assuming that's what's going on here because we got a a giant golden image, right? So probably have a giant furnace for separating metals that can also come in handy when a king wants to melt people, right? And so there's a threat that whoever doesn't worship the image that that Nebuchadnezzar has set up, it's this word we see repeatedly again and again, he's raised up an image. Nebuchadnezzar has done this and whoever doesn't worship the glittering golden image that he raises up will be burned in the fire. Verse seven, therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music, there's that repetition again, all, this means all, all the peoples, nations, languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So he played the music, everybody worshiped. And what does that verse remind you of? When all the peoples and nations, all the tribes, all the varieties of people that exist are all worshiping, one image. What, what does that remind you of? Well, that it should remind you of the true worship of the true God that we see in Revelation. Revelation 5, 9, I think it's also in chapter 7 as well. It's this, this picture of every human being, every tongue and tribe, every variety of people, the multi-ethnic people of God, all together from all over the world, worshiping Jesus, the true image of God, worshiping the true God himself. That's what's supposed to be happening in this world. And here we see kind of a fake of that, right? We see a false simulation because King Nebuchadnezzar, just to be clear, is not the true God and should not be worshiped in that way. So they're all falling down and worshiping the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse eight, therefore at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews maliciously means they're going after him, right? They're accusing the Jews. They're trying to entrap the Jews. The Jews might've escaped and might've gone unnoticed, except these guys are purposely trying to entrap them and get Nebuchadnezzar to be mad at them. So they accuse the Jews. Verse nine, they declare to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of, all the instruments, I'm gonna skip over that, shall fall down and worship the golden image. Verse 11, whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. These guys are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. Do you see how they're trying to stir up trouble? like, oh, king, you should live forever. You are the great king that should be bowed down to. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you should be worshiped. But these guys don't pay attention to you. These guys don't respect you. They don't worship you the way that they should. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have raised up, that you have set up. Two things here that I think the story should remind us of, especially remembering the first audience of these stories, were Jews who are very familiar with the Jewish literature. We as modern people may not be as familiar, so I'll fill you in. Um, Two things that we see here: number one, we see the phrase and the uh, geography of Babylon, right? the The plain of Dura, the city of Babylon. This should remind us of the first time. That this plane and the city comes up in scripture. And where is that? Well, that's in Genesis chapter 11, and it's a story about the Tower of Babel. Also, we've got the repetition of Nebuchadnezzar setting up this image. Raising up is literally what that means. So he's raising something up to the heavens, and it says it again and again and again in the text. Again, you'd see this repetition if you read the whole thing uh, in one sitting, but Nebuchadnezzar raises it up. He sets this thing up, and that's The concept that's the picture that's being painted in Genesis chapter 11 about the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was mankind's effort to not spread the image of God all over the world, but instead to raise up a name for themselves. Do you see that? There's a contrast. God tells us to spread all over the world, to spread paradise. That's the command given at the end of Genesis 1 on into Genesis 2. This is what humans are made for. We're made to reflect the goodness of God. But instead, what do we do? We gather to ourselves. We build a tower. We raise it up to the sky and we say, we're gonna make a name for ourselves. We don't wanna reflect your name, O God. We wanna raise up a name for ourselves. I grabbed an image here of the tower. Of Bible. That's not an actual photograph. That's just an artist's representation. But they built this great tower to the skies. And what did God do? God came down and he scattered them. God came down and he scattered them. What's really fascinating then to, to follow the story into the New Testament, God scatters them into different languages. What does God do with the apostles, with the first followers of Jesus in Acts chapter two? He comes down and he scatters them to be able to speak in all the different languages of the world. It's like a reversal and a healing of the Tower of Babel incident. He enables them to proclaim the name, to raise up the name of God and his mighty acts through Jesus, through reversing this language problem they have, right? Genesis 11, in punishment, he scatters them, gives them different languages so they can't have one unified language by which to glorify themselves. So he scatters them into different nations and languages. Well, in Acts chapter 2, God gives them the gift of speaking his name into all the languages represented in the world. It's an amazing story to follow through, but that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about now Nebuchadnezzar, Right? What is Nebuchadnezzar doing? Well, he's replaying the sin of ancient Babylon in Genesis 11. In his new Babylon, he's raising up a name for himself. He's saying that he will be great when God tells us that God alone is great. And our job as human beings is to be great, but it's a secondary greatness that reflects the greatness of God himself. So we see this contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and what God has told us to do. And this reminds us of our hero, Jesus himself, who did basically the opposite of this, right? So you got Nebuchadnezzar on the ground. You got the the Tower of Babel people on the ground. They're saying, we're gonna make a name for ourselves. We're gonna raise up a great image. And what does Jesus do? Jesus is already up there. Jesus doesn't have to build a stairway to heaven because Jesus is already in heaven, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter two, he lives in perfect equality with God and he doesn't see that as something to be held onto in a greedy way, but he freely gives that up and he comes down to earth. We as humans are, are building up our image and trying to look golden and glittering and trying to get more people to honor us and worship us like the people in the Tower of Babel and like Nebuchadnezzar himself. But Jesus leaves the glittering perfection of heaven and he comes down to earth and he becomes the stairway to heaven himself. He becomes the one as he explains to the apostles that the, the angels ascend and descend on this ladder, the stairway to heaven, this image that Jacob got in Genesis. Jesus says, that's me now. Jesus builds the tower instead of from the ground up to heaven, Jesus builds the tower back down. He comes and he takes our sins upon himself. He lives a perfect life that we could never live. He dies in our place. He rises from the dead. And he he takes us to be with God in heaven. It's just this beautiful picture of one story of mankind in rebellion, building themselves up to God. And the opposite is Jesus coming down to serve, coming down to give himself for us, reversing the sin of Babel and the sin of God of Nebuchadnezzar. John 3.13, another great cross reference says this, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. See that? We'll say it more modern because we don't really use the word ascend and descend, right? No one's climbed up the ladder into heaven except for Jesus who climbed down the ladder from heaven to get us and to bring us back up. That's the only person that ever climbed into heaven was Jesus himself. And how did he do it? Well, he was already in heaven and he climbed down first. He got us and he said, let's go. And he went back up with us. So we should, what does this have to do with the main point? Not be surprised by the fiery trials that we endure. There's been this story getting played out again and again. And we have a choice to make. Am I gonna follow Jesus and trust in him? And in that sense, be a part of him uh, building down from heaven and taking others back up with him? Or am I gonna follow the serpent in the temptation of Adam and Eve to say, I don't want God, I just wanna build a name for myself. And that's what we see played out in the Tower of Babel. That's what we see played out in Nebuchadnezzar himself. And what does that cause in our world? It causes a world that's on fire. Sin and death and brokenness and chaos, that's a world on fire and Christians have to be very careful that we don't say we're the good ones that aren't lighting the world on fire that's those bad people out there Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a famous uh, dissident in uh, the Soviet Union and he's famous for saying wouldn't it be great if we could just round up all the evil people and destroy them and then be done with evil in the world he says but the problem is evil runs through every human heart the fire And the chaos and the brokenness in the world is not just because of people out there. It's in us as well. And so our response can't be just to round up all the bad guys and get rid of them, right? And to be clear, I know a lot of you soldiers and police, the Bible affirms that there is a role for government to do that kind of thing, right? And that is a role of earthly government. And I'm not condemning that. What I'm saying is, as individual followers of God, we have to look into our own heart and say, wow, the world's on fire because I haven't loved others the way I should. The world's on fire because I don't honor Jesus the way that I should. We have to look into our own hearts and be confessional and, and turn to Jesus and become firemen. And so in that process, we have to not be surprised that the world's on fire, not be surprised at the fiery trials. We don't wanna fall into a kind of health and wealth thinking that says, well, if I go to church, then the world won't be on fire anymore. If I'm faithful, then the fires will will all stop. No, we're in a world that's on fire. It's a world of rebellion against God. And our job is to follow suit with Jesus, to follow Jesus, say, how can I help others? How can I confess my own sin? And how can I help others to see that Jesus is the answer, not raising up a tower to ourselves, but instead worshiping Jesus and Jesus alone. So don't be surprised by fire. Let's go back to 1 Peter 4.12 to look at how he tells us how to do this, right? Peter's the one that says it really clearly. Don't be surprised at these fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And then Peter gives us two applications. He says, here are two things to do. This is how you are to not be surprised by the fiery trials. Number one, don't fall into cynicism, but rejoice in the battle that God has called you to. That's the number one thing that Peter tells us to do. Number two, don't suffer selfishly in the fiery trial, but suffer in a way that serves others. And we hit on this last week as well. There's a lot of parallels between Daniel and First Peter. I have a, a hunch that I'm gonna keep going back to First Peter again and again throughout the Daniel series. So first thing is don't fall into cynicism but rejoice in the battle that God has called you to. Rejoice in the firefighting that God has called you to. Don't be surprised by the fiery trials. So here's the deal. When I say, don't be surprised that the world is on fire, there's part of you and part of me that's like, oh, okay, the answer is cynicism. Just be like, yeah, the world's on fire, whatever, right? (laughs) A kind of negative cynicism that, that kind of distances itself and says, not my responsibility World's on fire, always has been. Oh, well, I'm not surprised. I'm one of the smart people that's not surprised by it, right? I'm not gonna be hopeful. Instead, I'm gonna be cynical. And that's not what don't be surprised means, okay? Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, here's the book, A Praying Life, a fantastic book. I mention it like every month at the church. I'm really helpful in growing your prayer life. He talks a lot about praying with a childlike hopeful spirit versus praying with cynicism, Another way to say it is, if, if you're overly cynical, you won't even really pray, right? You should be like, well, God's in control, the world's on fire, whatever. God calls us to pray and to plead with him. Here's what Miller has to say about cynicism. He says, to be cynical is to be distant while offering a false intimacy of being in the know. Cynicism, skepticism makes you feel like, I'm in the know, I know how bad it is, right? And then you distance yourself from the world. Cynicism actually destroys intimacy. It leads to a creeping bitterness that can deaden and even destroy the spirit. A praying life is just the opposite. Do You hear that? If you're a person that actually prays, almost by definition, that means you're not cynical. So one of the ways to rejoice in the battle that God has called you to is to pray. And you may not be feeling it right now. I'm saying start praying and God will help you to fight that cynicism. Become a child that prays to your father. It says a praying life is just the opposite of the cynicism. A praying life engages evil. It doesn't take no for an answer. The psalmist was in God's face, hoping, dreaming, asking. Prayer is feisty. Cynicism, on the other hand, merely critiques. Probably one of the lines I've quoted the most from this book. Prayer is feisty, but cynicism just critiques. It's a passive cocooning itself from the passions of the great cosmic battle we are engaged in. It's without hope. But instead, Peter says, this is what it looks like to not be surprised by the fiery trial. Rejoice. Rejoice in your suffering. Engage in the battle that God has called you to. Beloved, don't be surprised. Verse 13, 1 Peter Rejoice in Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. that You may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is to be revealed. Prayer is this feisty hoping in God, calling on God to do great things through your brokenness and your suffering. That doesn't mean it's, it's wrong to have selfish prayers too. Like, hey God, I'm suffering really bad. Please relieve this, right? We even see that modeled in Jesus in the garden before he goes to the cross. He's like, if there's any other way, give me the other way, yet not my will, your will. And that's a feisty praying for our own thriving, but also praying ultimately that we would rejoice in the battle that God has called us to, the suffering that we're going through, walking through the fire. So not cynicism, but rejoicing in the battle. And also this kind of not being surprised in the fire means not selfish suffering, but Christian suffering. Again, we hit on that last week, but this is gonna come up again and again. This is what it means to be in exile is we live in suffering. So Peter says in 1 Peter four 15, don't suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Right, Meddler is an ancient Greek word for someone who spends too much time on social media. Meddler, it's a technical term. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Glorify God, right? What does that mean? That means you're raising up the name of God. Instead of raising up your own golden image or worshiping some other false God, you're raising up the name of God himself. You're not a murderer. You're not trying to kill people to get ahead because you don't trust God to take care of you. You're not a thief where you take stuff that doesn't belong to you because you don't trust God to take care of you. You're not a meddler. A meddler is really technically in the Greek, it's, it means overseeing other people's business, right? Busy body, messing with other people's stuff. That means I can't worry about myself alone. I've got to worry about other people now too because I can't trust God to take care of me and to take care of other people. What's the other thing he says? Evildoer, right? I'm gonna do evil because I don't trust God that doing good is worth it. And so not being surprised by the fire trial says, I'm gonna rejoice in the sufferings that God's called me to, meaning I, I trust that God's gonna accomplish something good as I, like a fireman, walk through the fire, face the difficulty of this burning world and try to help others and lift up his name. And I'm gonna trust him in my behavior. I'm gonna obey him even when it's painful because it's not always sweet and easy to obey Jesus. All right, second point, speak truth to fire. Speak truth to fire. This is one of the most famous parts of this story. It's a really uh, awesome part where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we know God can save us, but if not, or in other translations, and if not, there's this basic kind of resolve, right? We saw resolve with Daniel a couple, weeks, uh, a couple of weeks ago. There's this resolve like, we're gonna trust God. God can save us. We trust that God will save us. Even if he doesn't save us this week, we're still not gonna disobey him and worship you. We're still gonna worship God. We trust him. Chances are you and I won't be threatened with actual fire anytime soon, right? I, mean, I don't think the fires on the West Coast are making it here. Chances are we're not gonna have a government leader threaten us with the actual fires of judgment of saying, if you don't worship me, uh, you're gonna have to be thrown in this furnace. Chances are that's not gonna happen, but there will be other fires of being outsiders for following Jesus, other fires of facing pain and discomfort because we're obeying him instead of just going for the easy solution in life. There will be other fires that we face and we got a great model in these guys of speaking truth to the fire. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they brought in the men before the king. He said to them, is it true, guys, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up, raised up? Verse 15, if you're ready when you hear the sound of all the horns, I'm going to skip that over again, fall down and worship the image that I have made. Well and good, but if you don't do this, he's giving them another chance basically, right? The music's already been played. They didn't worship. He's like, okay, I'm gonna give you another shot to do this. But if you do not, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And listen to this great ironic verse. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You ever watching a movie and the bad guy kind of oversteps his boundaries and is like, no one can rescue You from me, because I am so powerful. You know that moment in the movie where the bad guy like displays his pride, displays how he doesn't believe he can be stopped? That's like a turn in a movie where you know, like, oh, okay, he's about to get his butt kicked, right? Like, things are gonna go badly now for this bad guy because he's just declared, things can never go badly for me. Well, that's kind of what's happening in the story. Nebuchadnezzar says, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? we know, and the first Jewish audience knew who that God was. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't so sure about it. Verse 16, they answered him and they said to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. A lot of scholars think this is like technical language. He's like, well, we don't legally need to even give a defense to you. In our standing as sons of God, we belong to him and we don't have to give a defense to you. But we will, verse 17, here it is if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So you see that? That's the speaking truth to the fire. That's you and I preaching to the junk that we live in. I know God is able to deliver me and I know God will deliver me. Do you see that? Now here's the mess. We live here, right? The Christian faith is, I know in the end, I will be delivered. I know the resurrection is my ultimate healing. And I look forward to that day where every tear is going to be wiped away and everything's going to be made right. And I'm gonna see my savior face to face. I know he will deliver me. And I know he's able to deliver me now. But if he doesn't deliver me this week, I'm still not gonna bow down to you, Nebuchadnezzar. So here again, We have no need to answer you. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And if not, but if not, I know God can save me. I know God will save me. I'm not sure if he's gonna save me next week or not. Do you see that? Even if he doesn't save me next week, I'm not gonna bow down. I'm gonna trust him and him alone. I'm not going to bow down to the false saviors of comfort that this world has to offer. I'm not going to bow down to the false saviors of power that Nebuchadnezzar is going to tempt me with. I'm not going to bow down to the false savior of money that our culture is going to throw at us that says it's going to solve all of our problems. I'm going to worship Jesus and Jesus alone. He's the answer for me. We've all got to be ready to speak truth to the fires that we face. Are you ready? Have you resolved this in your own mind? I know God can save me. I know God will save me. I'm not sure about this week. Even if he doesn't, I'm still gonna trust him. I'm still gonna trust him. I see the fires getting close to my house. I know God is able to save me and I'm gonna pray that he does. And I know ultimately that he will. I believe in the resurrection. I'm not sure if my house is gonna make it or not, but boy, I'm gonna pray that it does, but I'm still not gonna worship other false gods in the process. I'm gonna trust him and him alone. Are you to that place where you can speak truth to the fires that you're facing, whether it be cancer, divorce, economic loss, job loss. There are all these false securities that we see getting burned up in this world. These raging fires that we see all around us. Like I said, 2020 feels like everything's on fire. Like we used to understand how health works. We're not so sure anymore, right? We used to have kind of a stable society. We're not so sure anymore. The economy was kind of humming along. Okay, yeah, it's not so much anymore. We at least, you know, had our friends and had our connections socially. Well, we don't have as much of that anymore. And all these things can be good things, right? These secondary saviors these lesser powers, right? A great king can can be a great security in life. Money can be great security. Health can be great. These are all good gifts from God, but we can't worship them. We can't bow down to them. We have to acknowledge that God is our ultimate savior and he's really the one that we trust in. Are you prepared to speak truth to the false saviors that are offered at you? I think we gotta prepare. Uh, I grabbed a a picture of some soldiers preparing because... Most of the folks in our town are soldiers. Soldiers do a lot of planning and a lot of training. I wanna encourage you that coming up with a battle plan looks like praying and reading your Bible, worshiping with other Christians, encouraging each other. That's battle planning in the Christian life. Do you have a battle plan? And of course, knowing my military, I've never been in the military, but my military friends tell me no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy, right? Is that a thing people say? I think I said that right. I know the, I know the principle is right. I've lived that out. No plan survives first contact with the enemy, but you still plan, right? Prepare to speak truth to the fires that are raging all around you. And you do that by, by praying, by reading the scripture, by saying, this is what God says about the world, even though it doesn't feel that way sometimes, even though I can feel the the heat of the fire right now, this is what God says is true. Prepare and plan to speak truth. Um, Speak truth to the false God of wealth. That's one of the number one false gods in our culture. One of the number one images that you will be asked to bow down to is giving yourself completely to money and wealth. One of the ways Christians historically have spoken truth to that false God is we've set aside some of our income and we've given it to the poor and we've given it to the extension of God's truth in the world, right? Supporting churches and missionary activity. We've said, I'm gonna give some of my money to help the poor and to spread God's word. And just doing that systematically is a way to speak truth to your money so that your money doesn't creep up on you and ask you to start bowing down to it. This is a practice. Now that's an ongoing practice that can help you plan, speak truth, to that false god. And then when the worst happens, right? When your money's all gone, you've been practicing saying money's not everything, right? So if the worst case scenario unfolds and the economy completely crashes, you're kind of prepared for that because you've already been speaking truth to that power. Another category, comfort. Um, we're, we're drawn to comfort, especially in this weird time where we're drawn to uh, social media addiction and entertainment addiction uh, and we know it's documented, that stuff has been built to be addictive, right? There are engineers working right now around the clock to make sure that your social media and entertainment choices are as addictive as possible. That is scientifically true. That's what they do. They make it that way. And we can speak truth to power by limiting it, right? by putting our devices in boxes at night, by limiting the time that we use them, by saying, you know what? I think I'm gonna read God's word some instead of just, just giving myself over to entertainment and media. And then when worst case scenarios hit, when everything falls apart, you've been training yourself. You've already been speaking truth to the fire in little ways, and then you're more ready when worse things come, when more pain comes. Finally, Speak truth to the false God of glory. I think this ties up with the golden image thing. Man, we're gonna be tempted just like Nebuchadnezzar to just keep creating this false image, to keep raising up a name for ourselves. And there are ways that we can speak truth to that fire, to that temptation, to that threat, that if you don't raise a name for yourself, you will be destroyed, right? Jesus gave us a really great practice in John 13. He said, do like I do, John 13 He took on the lowliest of social positions in his culture and washed his disciples' feet. Now, washing feet doesn't make sense in our culture because we all wear closed-toed shoes and we all have indoor plumbing, right? But the example can be take a lowly position to serve others. What are ways, practical ways, those that you work with, those in your home, those in your neighborhood, that you can practically serve them, actually help them with a real need they have in a way that, that points out, I'm not trying to build a name for myself, I'm trying to build a name for my servant, Savior. It's a good way to to practice speaking truth to the powers of this world and to the threat of fire that they bring. These are all examples of what that kind of speaking truth to the fire can look like, but the root is faithfulness to Jesus. Just recognizing that Jesus is really the only answer, that he's my only hope. And when you are sure of that and you recite that and you speak that truth over and over to yourself, we call it preaching the gospel to ourselves. When you're reciting the reality that Jesus loves me, he proved that, he gave himself for me. When you remind yourself of that, then you're prepared when the fiery trials come in life. Last thing that we see is they meet the savior in the fire. And this is really the the glorious victory part of the story, right? In verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar was then astonished and he rose up in haste. They were thrown into the fire and he says, but didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? And they said to the king, well, yeah, king. Verse 25, he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. They are not hurt. So previously I skipped over these verses. They refused to bow down. He threw them in the fire. It goes into this funny details in the text and it says, and they were wearing their fancy clothes and their turbans. You know, like it kind of adds some detail if they were wearing nice clothes and they were tied up and they were thrown in the fire. And he's like, wait, I see them walking around and they're unhurt. And there's a fourth, a fourth man walking around with them. Four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, New Testament readers, those of us living today in the world of knowing the son of God, Jesus, are immediately thinking of Jesus, right? We're not really sure theologically if this was Jesus in a pre-incarnate appearance, right? Pre-incarnate means like before he took on flesh as the son of God and was born in Bethlehem. So sometimes we uh, scholars think, well, sometimes when there was a messenger of God that looked like a man, maybe that was Jesus. We're not really sure. It was either an angel or it was God himself as Jesus. It's hard to interpret those passages. Either way, we know it was God's presence communicated to people. Whether that was Jesus himself or it was an angel, listen to me, this is the important thing. When you're in the fire, God says, my presence will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. And that's what we see illustrated in the story. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the fiery furnace and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. Servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then they came out of the fire. (laughs) And it repeats again, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and all of them, all of them together saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. They weren't even burned. You know, when you're hanging out with a buddy and they're smoking and your clothes smell like smoke, right? and you're not even on fire. You're just near a small fire, a fire this big, but you can still smell it, right? He's saying their clothes didn't even smell like fire. No damage at all. Complete preservation. Now, here's the thing. When we faithfully follow Jesus, sometimes our clothes get burned. Sometimes we get burned. Sometimes we go down. So again, remember what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. They said, we know God can save us, and we know ultimately God will save us, we're not sure about this week. Either way, even if not, and if not, but if not, we're not gonna worship a false God. We're gonna trust God. God's either gonna save you and me miraculously here and now, or he's gonna save us through the resurrection, through our union with Christ, through physical death and being reunited with God forever. Either way, we trust him. Either way, we trust him because he's proven himself faithful to us. In this story, just like many of you have shared stories with me, God miraculously rescued them in a way that didn't make sense. And I've heard some of your stories and you've got amazing stories of, man, God showed up in this unique way. I've had stories like this, not with fire, but just in ways circumstantially where I was like, man, everything was pointing this way and God turned the tables and and life went that way. And it was a great comfort to me Well, Nebuchadnezzar is challenged by what he's seen. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own. That's a great application for us, right? They yielded up their bodies. What he's saying is, rather than go along with the false worship of a false God, they gave up their very bodies. They were willing to give it all up. Are we there in our faith in Jesus? Are we willing to, to give up our bodies? And again, we're reminded of Romans 12, one and two that says, because we look back on the grace because of the mercies of God, Paul says in Romans, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. The only thing that could make you or me actually willing to give up our bodies is recognizing that Jesus gave up his body for us first. And that's the greatest truth here. And that's how we actually meet our savior in the midst of these fires. It's often these fires, it's often the terrors of life where we're pressed into a closer place of having to rely on God. You see, when we're not in a fire, we can kind of just rely on ourselves. You know, we can just kind of live under the illusion of I've got it under control. Everything's fine. I don't really need God. I mean, God's nice and I've read the Bible and he's cool and all that, but I can, I can take care of myself. It's when the fires of life press in on us that we really most deeply meet the Savior who is there with us in the fire. And we're willing to give up our, our very own bodies. This is a beautiful picture of faithfulness They yielded up their bodies rather than served and worship any God except their own God. And then Nebuchadnezzar, in a very Nebuchadnezzar sort of way, makes a great pro-God decree. Here it is. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there's no other God who's able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, as the church... Just like Peter was told to put his sword away when he was cutting off the ear of the servant of the high priest, we're told, no, put the sword away. Don't be like Nebuchadnezzar. Don't go killing everybody that says bad things about God, right? We're called on to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, to give of ourselves and serving others. Final application from this section, uh, I think, is continue the ongoing process of looking at the false saviors that you've been trusting in and giving those up for the true savior. This is an ongoing process in our life. I grabbed a picture of some kids picking up trash. Um, this, is what I, this is the image I want you to be thinking of. Again, the childlike follower of Jesus. We just trust God and God says, that's trash. And we're like, okay, I'll throw it in the trash bucket. And he says that to us with the false saviors that we're tempted to trust in. And Paul lives this out in Philippians 3. It's a really beautiful passage in Philippians 3 where Paul is talking about the suffering of life enduring the fires of life and the fires of suffering. He's talking about the pain of life. And he says, in this process, he's learned more and more to consider what he thought was gonna save him to be trash, to be rubbish, to be loss, and instead to consider Jesus his ultimate treasure. And in so doing, to to begin to know the true resurrection power through sufferings in life. Let me read that verse for you and we'll finish with it. Paul says in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Let me pause there for a second. Paul says, I I count the other things as lost. I'm throwing away the stuff I used to trust in because I see Jesus as treasure, surpassing worth, right? Don't flip that around. Don't say... I'm going to impress Jesus and get him to love me by counting everything else as loss. No, we count it as loss because he loved us first. We love because he first loved us. I, I count these things as loss because of the surpassing worth of Jesus. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Guys, I, let me come down to earth for a second and say, I wish I could say that more honestly on a day-to-day basis. And that is what I'm praying For you and for me. You're probably like me. When I read this from Paul, I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm there yet, Paul, but that's what I aspire. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count these things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I pray regularly that God would let me know his resurrection through the easiest means possible. But here Paul says, I pray that I would know the resurrection of Christ by any means possible. And very often that means walking through the fire of this chaotic world that God has called us to. He calls us to face scary things, trusting that he's worth it. That's my prayer for you, it's my prayer for me, that we would know his resurrection, that we would walk through the fire by any means possible, knowing the resurrection life that can be found in Christ and Christ alone. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you gave yourself for us. We see this vision of a God Who is considered of surpassing worth, who who presses out competing saviors as we walk through the fires of this life. God, we honestly, as your children, pray that you would relieve suffering in this world. We pray that you would use us to be able to put out the fires, the real fires on the West Coast, but also the metaphor metaphorical fires, the spiritual fires of a world that's in turmoil. Will you help us to relieve suffering? We pray both as servants that we could serve others and relieve their suffering, but also we pray as your children, God, it hurts, this world hurts, and we want relief. But more than that, we pray that we would know the power of your resurrection. We pray that your will would be done in our lives, that you would give us the strength supernaturally, because we don't have it in ourselves. You'd give us the strength supernaturally to walk through the fires of this world, to raise up your name and to love you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.